Welcome back to What You Will Learn. My name is Adam Ashton. And my name is Adam Jones. Today, we are reviewing Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. No subtitle. No First sub- one without a subtitle. It speaks for itself, mate. It doesn't need a subtitle. Uh, Daniel Kahneman and his good friend Amos Tversky, they were, uh, they're basically the fathers of behavioral economics and a lot of the psychological things that we've learned over the last 40 years, these guys did a hell of a lot. Yes, and he won a Nobel Prize and was the first behavioral economist to win a Nobel Prize. So this Bible, this is this book is basically the Bible of behavioral economics and there's been so many spin-off books that have basically just ripped off yeah. minor chapters of this and then they've blown it up into 300-page books. Pretty clever. <laughs> there's there's a lot of there's a lot of gold in here. Uh, it's a big book. We first reviewed it back in season 1. Uh, it was pretty weak, so we're we're doing it again. And uh, it's actually such a big book. It's like 430 pages. We're going to break this into two parts over the next two weeks. So the first part, we're going to set up the two systems of thinking. You know, so obviously the thinking fast bit and the thinking slow bit. And then we're going to start our discussion on some of the heuristics and biases that we have. Things like the law of small numbers, anchors, availability, base rate neglect, uh, and, and regression to the mean. And then in the second part next week, we're going to talk about things like the narrative fallacy, hindsight bias, intuitions, the planning fallacy, loss aversion, sunk costs, and the experiencing self versus the remembering self. So it's a beast of a book. It's going to take all of our cognitive effort. Yeah. Uh, I've read the book many times, <laughs> not by choice, but by accident. And uh, for multiple reasons, which might come up in the episode. <laughs> I'd say actually this is the book that you spent the most hours on in terms of reading and making notes for. Yeah, well, I b- bought the book, read most of it, lost it, started again because <laughs> I didn't have my highlights, did all the notes, got my laptop stolen, <laughs> so I had to do all the notes again. So it's just been an absolute juggernaut to get through, but I've basically done a, enough hours for a whole undergraduate degree in behavioral <laughs> economics, which isn't a bad thing. That's actually that's probably good. If there's any one book to do it, this is probably one of those. Absolutely. Part one of the book is all about the two systems. So it's setting it up, the two characters that we're going to be going through over the next two episodes. System one, first of all, this is fast thinking. So this operates automatically and quickly without little or no effort and no sense of voluntary control. Yeah, this is the effortless thinking. These are like the snap judgments, the initial feelings, the gut, the intuition, all of these things that happen automatically without us consciously taking the effort to think about something. System one just snaps into action and makes assumptions. So, some examples of system one, fast thinking, it might be finding the answer to two plus two. You don't need to think about that. If you're driving in a car on an empty road and you've got some experience, you're not thinking about that. You're on autopilot. And if you're detecting hostility in a voice, again, uh, it's something that's part of the intuition and it doesn't require hardcore thinking. Yeah, as you say, a lot of these emotional or feelings-based things happen as snap judgments of, of system one. Without you thinking about it, uh, You know, us looking and making reactions, that's system one. Also, some of the things that after you become more competent or after you've practiced something a lot, some of the things might start to shift towards system one. You don't have to think about it anymore. Like two plus two, you know, when you're in primary school, you probably had to think about it, but mm. now it's just intuition. So the associative machinery in your brain has weaved all these brain nerves together to associate things between ideas. So if you say, what's the capital of, capital of France? Immediately, you just know it's Paris and you might think of the Eiffel Tower and all these associative things that come up in your head. Yeah, so on the other hand, system two, the slow thinking of the title, 
this is the thing that demands cognitive effort. We have to almost like stop and think hard about something. It's not the snap judgments. These are the things where we actually have to uh, invest or expel energy in order to think about them. So, if you're filling out your tax form, for example, that requires effort. If you're parking in a narrow space, you're switching your whole brain on hardcore onto that situation. Or if you're looking for a woman with white hair, for example, in a crowd. Yeah, if you're scanning the crowd, obviously, you're taking a, uh, a lot of investment to try and block out everything else and just focus narrowly on that one thing. Another one he says is like bracing for the starting gun. If you're in a race, all of your cognitive effort is thinking about and listening to that starter's gun. You're not thinking about anything else at the same time. This is often stuff that you, you know, if you can't multitask, if uh, things are getting pretty heated in your mind and you might have to stop and think and focus deeply by expanding, uh, expelling this energy on system two thinking. Whenever you are asked or you have to pay attention, that's when you're really mm. using system two. And the analogy is pretty good because you have a limited amount of system two energy. So, you're actually paying attention throughout the day that you can allocate to certain activities. Before you know it, you're, you're gone over your budget and then all of a sudden you run out of system two. Yeah. So, that's a high level of the two systems. So, system one, that's the fast thinking. System two, that's the slow thinking. So, we'll dive a little bit deeper into each of these now and we'll, we'll start with system two. And he starts off with like a, a little problem here. A bat and ball cost a dollar ten, a dollar one dollar and ten cents. The bat costs one dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? So straight away you think that, you know the bat and ball cost a dollar ten. Uh, you think the ball must cost only ten cents. Yeah, that's the system one. You instantly think, okay, if that's a dollar more, then this must be ten cents. But really, if the ball is ten cents and the bat is a dollar more, that's a dollar ten. That adds up to a dollar twenty. You've got it wrong. It takes a bit of system two to stop and think. Okay, hang on. The ball is actually five cents. The bat is a dollar more, and it's a dollar five to get your answer. So the system one's probably tripped you up there. Your instant snap judgment by listening to the numbers, you've uh, you've jumped to a conclusion, and you're wrong. It takes a bit of system two to slow down and think about it more deeply. And that's what we're going to learn a lot throughout the episode is that sometimes system one just jumps in, does the answer for you, and when it's something a job, you should be bringing your, your system two in. Now, one of the defining features of System 2 is because it does take so much energy to stop and think deeply about something and to consciously and effortfully think, it's actually pretty lazy. System 2 doesn't like to be triggered. It likes to just sit in the background and not work if it doesn't have to work. Yeah, it's got a reluctance to invest any more effort than's necessary for the task. So, it's like a general law of at least effort applies to this cognitive as well as physical exertion. If there's several ways of achieving the same goal, people are always going to choose the path of least effort and least action. And an- another thing that we've uh, learnt in recent decades, we as in you know cognitive psychologists around the world, uh, they've they've learned that switching tasks is also very effortful. So switching, you know, if you if system two is focused on something, and then you have to switch tasks. It takes a lot of energy to switch out and then switch back in and it takes time to uh, realign back to the problem that you were thinking about originally. And that's because system two does take a lot of effort and a lot of energy. So, trying to switch it off and switch it back on, uh, there's a big cost to that in terms of your cognitive capacity. So, system two takes effort and the second thing is system two gets depleted. So, it's easy, for example, and quite pleasant to walk and think at the same time because most of the time when you're walking... And the thinking, you're thinking of system one style. 
but if you are walking with someone, here's a little test for you. Ask them to compute 23 times 78. And when you do that, they're almost certainly going to stop to think because all of a sudden when you have to do that multiple, multiple, you really need to start drawing on your system two thinking. And because all of a sudden your system two is going to take your whole brain load and cognitive power, all of a sudden your brain has nothing left over to continue on walking. Normally, if you're just walking, it might be taking, I don't know, 2 or 3% of your cognitive uh, efforts. If you're talking to someone, that's another couple of percent. Uh, but all of a sudden, if you've got this 23 times 78, you're going to need to dedicate a lot more of your cognitive resources to that. So you need to switch off the walking, you need to switch off the talking, you need to switch off the thinking and reallocate everything just to try to solve that one problem. It's interesting. Evidence suggests that, that when you've used up your system to you're more likely to give in to a lot of different temptations and your willpower is basically gone and you start doing the things you don't really want to do. There's been specific evidence to show that you're going to eat more chocolate cake, for example, when your system two has been taken up or is depleted. Yeah, because you're spending so much uh, of your cognitive resources on thinking about things deeply with system two, He says there's often things like, you know, deviating from your diet, like eating chocolate cake or maybe overspending on purchases or reacting aggressively to some uh, requests or provocation. Like these are the things that normally with, if you're not expending so much energy thinking, you're able to control your impulses. But if all your energy is going towards system two, uh, then maybe you might snap or, you know, overspend, splurge, Mm. eat some chalky cake. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it takes a lot of effort to... To have this self-control, mm. if you're walking through, uh, you know, shopping and you're vulnerable to, you're a bit of a shopaholic. You're using up system two to not buy shit, and then eventually, if you're fully used up, you're gonna start fucking buying all the <laughs> all the stuff that's, that's that's poking at you because you've had a long day at work and you've already used up all your system two. So, you know, maybe don't go shopping if you're a shopaholic after after a day's work. There was this one interesting study of a board of parole judges. What these parole judges did was they spent entire days reviewing applications of parole. And generally, they get these presented to them in a random order. They spend about six minutes on each one. And then they decide if this person should be granted parole or not granted parole. Uh, It obviously takes a a fair bit of effort to think about all of the different uh, circumstances involved in each of these parole applications. And obviously, there's a lot of system two thinking in that. And what they found was that through different parts of the day, if it was you know, coming to 11.30, 12 o'clock and the judges had spent a couple of hours trawling through different parole applications, they were maybe getting a bit hangry, they hadn't eaten yet, they depleted their system too, the people who were presented the, those parole options were actually more likely to be rejected compared to someone who, say, just after lunch, they were a bit rested, they'd had a bit of a feed, the judges were actually more lenient at that time of day, which is pretty unfortunate if you were found yourself in the wrong order. So the default decision is normally denial with only 35% approved. But after a meal, all of a sudden, it bumps up to 65% of all parole is granted. And then it trails off toward the the next food break to pretty much close to zero. (laughs) So before reading this book, you might think, all right, it's all about what the prisoner, what they've been doing and how their good work has been. But what this study suggests, it's really irrelevant about the prisoner. It's all about the time of day and how much system two has been used up of these judges who are approving or disapproving their parole. So the conclusion was tired and hungry judges tend to fall back on easier default positioning of denying requests for people. 
Yeah, that's crazy. If the default is to uh, deny the request, if they're nice and fueled up, they take a bit more time thinking about it uh, and maybe they're a bit more lenient, but by the end of the day when they're pooped, they're hungry, they just go to the default and think, nah, deny it. Absolutely. Have another couple of years, mate. (laughs) So the implications of this for you is start rationing your system too a little bit better as much as you can. If you've got a massive meeting or something at 3 p.m. that you want to be on the ball don't do anything too cognitive challenging earlier in the day. It's something that I've been stuffing up recently. I've been learning jujitsu in the mornings before work at 6 a.m., using up a lot of system two. And then, you know, the days I do that, a lot of the time I've realized I've, I'm cactus. Mm. So for me, I'm going to start shifting that learning activity to after work. Yeah, that's a good move. Yeah, you've got to be very careful of, of how you structure your day. Knowing that there is a limit to how much system two you have throughout the day, you need to structure your day nicely. The next thing we want to dive into is system one. And what system one does, it likes to jump to conclusions. It likes to look at things around it and see. So that's all about system two, which is slow, deliberate thinking. Next, we're going to talk about system one, which is all about your fast thinking. Kahneman says that the main function of system one is to just sort of keep you maintained and updated, have this model of the world around you and think, is this normal? What system one does is it detects things that stray from the norm. So it's sort of constantly assessing things around you and thinking, is this normal? If something is abnormal, that's when system one gets triggered and sort of notifies you that something is different. The whole model of system one is constructed by putting together links of ideas, of circumstances, events, actions, outcomes that occur with some regularity, either at the same time or some kind of short intervals. So, you know, this is without your choice. It's putting all this, these links and ideas, all these together just for you to form judgments about the world. So one test that he says is, you know, you've got to ask yourself, how many animals of each kind did Moses take onto the ark? Two, yeah? Yeah, two. Yeah. yeah. But that's wrong. <laughs> and that sounds okay because you the question you asked and how many animals did Moses take onto the ark? You're probably listening thinking that question sounds all right. But it wasn't Moses. It was actually Noah who, who took everything yeah. on the ark. But the reason you listened then and thought that that question, there was nothing wrong with that, is, is because Moses is associated in a biblical context like Noah so the question made sense. Yeah. If you said, how many animals of each kind did Donald Trump take onto the ark? That stands out as something very, very wrong. Your system one would notice something different. It sounds like a, a pretty weak political gag uh, instead yeah. of a genuine question. Whereas Moses is close enough, you know, in biblical nature, you've got the ark, you've got someone who sounds like they were from that, you know, from that Bible, then uh, it probably, you probably missed it. But if you, you know, obviously if there was something way too obvious, then it would be way off. So this is what they call the Moses illusion. And it's another area where your associative machinery might make mistakes because of the the similar context. Another area that it, it makes mistakes is system one has a tendency to really jump to conclusions. Yeah, often, as we said, system two is effortful. So rather than... Uh initiating system two system one does a lot of jumping to conclusions to do the work itself and you know most of the time it's probably right there's probably a small margin for error which is acceptable but sometimes it jumps to the if it jumps to the too wrong a conclusion that's when you start to come unstuck it's a very efficient thing to do if the cost of making a mistake is acceptable um, and if the the jump takes a lot of time and effort jump that conclusion good idea 
but there's times when it might be very risky and the cost of jumping to conclusions is is big, then it might be really bad. For example, we're going to get into to a whole bunch of scenarios later, but if you know someone's coming in for a meeting and you jump to a conclusion based on what they've dressed and it's the person you're going to hire for the next 12 months, jumping to a conclusion is a very bad idea then. So, you know, situations like that, you need to keep your system one in check and call on your system two. Even though your brain doesn't automatically do this, it's something you need to uh, train yourself up a little bit. Yeah, the issue, another issue with jumping to conclusions is that system one doesn't keep track of the different options that it rejected and it also doesn't keep track of whether it was a good jump or not. Basically, it just jumps. All the other, If you've got five different options and system one jumps to a conclusion, it forgets about the other four that could have been and it also forgets to, I guess, check itself whether that was a good decision or not. Uh, so, system one doesn't really learn that quickly and often, and often it just forgets that there were other options out there. So, one of the risks associated with jumping to conclusions, you're skipping a whole bunch of information that you don't see. And this is what he calls, what you see is all there is. So as an example, if we were to say, will Mindic be a good leader? She is intelligent and strong. And listening right now, you're thinking, yeah, if she's intelligent and strong, she's probably a bloody good leader. And you probably picked yes. But really, you're making this assumption based on very, very limited information. You've only got two tiny pieces of information. And, you know, the next, the next two pieces might be she's also corrupt and cruel. But, you know, your system one immediately jumps to the conclusions because it, it disregards all the things it doesn't see. Yeah, and it's, uh, this is probably skipping ahead a little bit, but it's interesting in the way that you set up that. If you say, will Mindig be a good leader? She's intelligent and strong, but she's sometimes cruel and mean. Is very different to saying, will Mindig be a good leader? She's cruel and mean, but she's also very intelligent and strong. The order in which you present that information really impacts on what kind of decision system one makes. If the first thing it hears is intelligent and strong, and then it hears mean and cruel, it probably discounts that. But if it hears mean and cruel first, it probably ignores the intelligent and strong part. Absolutely. So their research shows that participants who see one-sided evidence are more confident of their judgments than those who saw both sides, which is kind of ridiculous. It should be the other way around. If you hear Mm. one side of the story um, and you haven't heard the other, you should be less confident, but (laughs) it's, it's the other way around. Those people who've heard both sides of the story are always less confident. Yeah. That's a shame, but that's uh, that's the biases of the of the human mind. There's a few other things that fall into play here. There's a lot of overconfidence. So we often think that we're better at making decisions than we actually are. Yeah, our, our cognitive system has managed to just really suppress suppress all doubt and, and ambiguity. And we're really prone to framing effects. So different ways of presenting the same information invoke different emotions. So you had the example of Mindic. If you just re- reordered it, it makes a completely different result. Or for example, if you said something is 90% fat free, that sounds pretty good. Mm. But if you said 10% fat, doesn't sound good at all, does it? Yeah, exactly. If you say, oh, this medical procedure, there's a, the, the odds of surviving are 90%. That's pretty mm. good. But if you say that the risk of death is 10%, exactly the same info, but it sounds a hell of a lot more scary. Yeah, mate, I bought some bacon once from Aldi and it said 96% real bacon. <laughs> so, so, to a lot of people, it'd be, yeah, 96%. But then if they frame that mate, as- what's in, the other 4%? Exactly. If they, <laughs> if they framed it as 4% not bacon and you're buying bacon, you're like, geez, what is that? So, that's framing effects. And the other one is base rate neglect, which we're going to spend a bit of time on as well. So, if the personality description is 
salient and vivid, then the statistical base rate and the facts really just doesn't come up into your mind. You just listen to the narrative of how things are presented and then just make your assumptions based on that. Yeah, so they're the two systems that guide all of our thinking. The first, the system one, the fast thinking. It often jumps to conclusions. It likes to do a lot of the work for us. It's intuitive. It's quick. It's automatic. And then if, it, if something gets too hard, that's when system two gets triggered. That's the slow thinking. It's effortful. It's cognitively demanding. You need to take time and energy to think about it. So now that we've sort of given you the overview of system one and system two, we're going to dive into the heuristics and biases of the human mind and how these sometimes work in our favor and often don't. The law of small numbers. There's a study of kidney cancer patients in the US across over 3,000 different counties, and they found this remarkable pattern. They found that the counties in which the kidney cancer rate was the lowest were mostly rural areas that were sparsely populated and somewhat isolated. And, you know, it probably makes some kind of sense. You can weave a bit of a story around that saying that maybe the low cancer rates were a direct result of like the clean living, the rural lifestyle, a bit more of a community feel. There's sort of no air pollution. There's no water pollution. They've got access to fresh food. They don't have as many chemicals, things like that. Which kind of makes sense, yeah? Mm, Absolutely. What they also found was that the counties with the highest kidney cancer rates were rural towns that were sparsely populated and that were somewhat isolated. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, it kind of makes sense as well, yeah, because (laughs) maybe, you know, maybe those areas had some kind of, you know, lower standard of living. Maybe they smoked a lot more cigarettes. Maybe they drank more alcohol. Maybe there was a low fat, uh, maybe there was a high fat diet. Maybe they had less access to healthcare. Mm. Yeah, which <laughs> is crazy because this rural lifestyle can't explain both the very high incidence of cancer, the very high cancer rate, and the very low cancer rate. And these are the narratives people were spinning, right? These two different narratives, but they can't explain explain both at the same time. And if you think about it, it's to do with this law of small numbers because these counties had much lower populations, and say like in New York City. There's probably like, you know, a, it could be varying from a, a 5% rate to a 0.01% rate. Because the numbers are so small, it's easy to have more extremes. Whereas if there was something with a much larger population, with a much larger sample size, it almost becomes more normal. There's less variance, there's less extremes. So, there's a really simple way of explaining the law of small numbers. Say if you've got an urn filled with marbles and half are red and half are white. And let's say that the base rate of numbers is you've got 10 marbles total, so five of each. You might draw, say, uh, six marbles out, which is quite a small number, and you might you might draw five red. So from that, you might think, uh, bear with me on the mass, it might be you know, 80, 87% or whatever it might be of marbles are red, and then you draw that conclusion. But that's only just because there's only 10 marbles in the box. But then if you had 1,000 marbles in this urn, all of a sudden, and you draw 500, all of a sudden, the population size that you're drawing from increases, so you're going to get a, a percentage much closer to the realistic number. So, when you looked at that cancer study, in the counties, you might have only had a population of, I don't know, let's go extreme and say there's only 30 people there, and then one uh, county had six people who had kidney cancer, then all of a sudden, you got a ridiculously high number. And then they go to these other counties as well with a population of 30 and no people. So, all of a sudden, there's 0% of, of mm. cancer. So, 
here people were attributing some ridiculous narratives to why the rates of kidney cancer what they were, but in reality, it's just because the sample size was tiny. Yeah, one of the real world example he might give you uh, as a as an example is you know maybe the a company gets a, a brand new CEO and for the first three quarters there's massive growth, but obviously that's such a small sample size and you can't attribute that just to the brand new CEO. So he's saying that you know if we if we're zooming in on such small sample sizes, it's easy to think it's more extreme than it is. Whereas if you extrapolate things to a much larger sample size, it's probably going to look more like the average would. So it's something you're going to be quite careful of. It happens a lot in sport, I think, as well. So CEOs as well who are leading companies and you, you know, they do three wins in a row and you think it's amazing and you don't think it over, you know, over the last 50 actions they did. Same in sport, you know, a, a, something is happening in in Australian rules a few times and it's probably happened in baseball and basketball all, all over the world and so forth is you know the coach might get sacked and uh, all of a sudden the team wins four in a row and then all of a sudden everyone's saying well because the coach gets sacked everyone's scared of the new coach and they're playing in in with extreme motivation to play so well this is the reason why they're doing so well but then again, there might be another year the coach gets sacked and they lose four in a row and they think this new coach sucks. Yeah, but yeah, again, exactly. it's just because the law of small numbers, it's only a population size of four and they're weaving ridiculous stories to suit this and they're falling for this uh, this bias. Mate, and at the time that we're talking, both of our teams, the coach got sacked this year and both <laughs> then went on. Actually, three, three coaches have been sacked this year and all three teams the next week, the team won. So it's almost like, oh man, every time the coach gets sacked, the team wins, but well, that's, that's, that's three games. Yeah, yeah. That's, and that's exactly what the commentators are saying. Oh, there's this, there's this effect. <laughs> sacking coaches and teams are all of a sudden winning. So their story that they're got saying and they're weaving is that more coaches should be sacked <laughs> because they're going to win more games. Anchors. Daniel Kahneman wants the cheeky bugger that he is. <laughs> he wants rigged a wheel of fortune. Right, he got a hundred numbers and he rigged it to be either ten or sixty-five. But the people spinning this wheel had no idea that it was rigged. So he got him to spin the wheel. Then he asked two questions. He said to them, "Is the percentage of African nations among UN members larger or smaller than the number you wrote? You know, ten or sixty-five." Then the second question he asked is, "What is your best guess of the percentage of African nations in the UN?" And you might think, surely spinning that rigged wheel has no effect on these answers. It's got nothing to do with this bloody wheel they just spun. But the average estimates of those who saw 10, they predicted 25%. And those who spun 65 said it was 45%. So, you know, an almost doubling in the percentage of their prediction based on this wheel that has absolutely nothing to do with the question. Yeah, and you're probably thinking to yourself, oh, I wouldn't fall for that. I wouldn't if I saw if I spun a wheel and saw ten. That should have no impact on the number I'm guessing for the percentage of African countries. But uh, obviously, it's proven over a large sample size with not just a small law of small numbers effect here. There's a lot of people, and it showed that, as you say, it's almost twice as uh, it's almost twice as much that they're guessing if they spun sixty five than if they spun 10, which is completely unrelated. So this is an anchoring effect, which uh, you, you might be starting to think about, fuck, this can be quite useful if you're playing with numbers and you want to influence people when you know you start getting into things like salary and stuff like that, which is always a bit of fun. So there's this anchoring effect is a hardcore system one 
that happens from priming and it's this automatic manifestation that's, you know, it's got nothing to do with the system to uh, judgment. It's your associative machinery down the bottom, which you can't tell, uh, making some biases to what your judgments are. Yeah, if you're just if you're just to think, you know, what percentage of countries in the world are in Africa, you're going to be using system two, and you'll be thinking, well, okay, how many countries in the world are there? Roughly, how many countries are in Africa? Uh, and you're probably going to use your system two there. But because we've used system one to have this crazy ten or sixty five, what we're actually doing is starting from there and adjusting as we go. So rather than starting from scratch and thinking for ourselves, we're starting from 10 and thinking, okay, well, it's, it's probably higher than 10. You're adjusting from 10. So it's this process of adjustment rather than thinking from scratch. So if you're a kid listening now and you play music in your room and you, your mum always tells you to turn the music down, one way you might use the anchoring effect is you might have it absolutely blaring, ridiculously loud, even too loud for you. And that's her anchor. So when she comes up and tells you to turn it down, you could actually have the base level at where you closer to where you want it to be. Yeah, very sneaky, very sneaky. Another way that we see this seemingly random impact of these random anchors that shouldn't have anything to do with anything, they tested these German judges. I don't know what Kahneman's got against judges, but he likes to show how fucking fucked up Mate, they are. And fucking poor prisoners. <laughs> it's got nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with the crime you've made, does it? No, I really hope this was like a test, not like genuine people's lives at stake. It's, mate, it's people's, people's <laughs> oh, lives. <no. laughs> so anyways, he's taking these German judges. They had an average of 15 years experience. So these are, they're not just new, new kids on the block. These are serious, these are serious judges. And what they were presented with here was a fictional account. Okay, so it was, it, thankfully it's not a real person. It was a description of a woman who had been caught shoplifting. And what they did was they then rolled a dice, a seemingly random act. Of course, Kahneman, he'd rig these dice to either roll three or nine. And after they rolled the dice, the, the, they were asked, how long should this woman be sentenced to in months? And unfortunately, the, the people, if they rolled a nine, they said she should get eight months jail for shoplifting. If they rolled a three, they average five months jail time. That's a big anchoring effect, man. Mm, that's a, it's a number of 50%, the difference there, which is ridiculous. So, you know, this study is showing that there are real people out there who are getting sentenced because of this anchoring effect. Like, who knows what parts of the environment that the judge was predisposed to before they make their decisions about mm. how long people should be going to jail. Yeah, obviously, like rolling a dice right before you decide is, is something you're never going to do. But as you say, it's other things throughout the day. Maybe they just read the newspaper and it said the stock market crashed by $3 billion today or something. Or maybe uh, they're anchored by other things in their environment, things that they'd done throughout the day that they didn't even realize was impacting their decision. So some organizations catch on to the anchoring effect and use it to their advantage. So for example, supermarkets can use arbitrary rationing as a serious marketing ploy. So well, what one supermarket did, for example, they had a promotion for Campbell's Soup at 10% off regular price, which is an all right deal, but not, not the, you know, not going to change the world or anything. And what they did is some days they had the limit of 12 people per person, and some days they had a limit of, and some days it had no limit per person. So you think on the days with no limit, you know, they can go infinity, so it's probably going to be higher. But what actually happened was, those who were anchored to 12 per person, they were much closer to that anchor thinking, all right, if I can only get 12, I might as well get a whole lot more. So those shoppers purchased seven cans when these limits were in force, which was twice as much as those with no limit per person. Yeah, it's pretty weird. Yeah, you'd think like, okay, if there's no limit, 
I don't know how much soup people eat, but you probably get two, three, four cans. But if it says limit 12 per person, you think other people are probably getting 12. And you're like, oh man, I should probably cash in on this off while it's here. I'll get, I should get six or seven cans. Yeah. It's, pretty, it's pretty crazy um, yeah. to have such a, a, like a, a high limit that actually makes people buy more. So obviously this has huge utility in negotiation. For example, if you're negotiating in Bali or your travel destination of choice, the initial anchor of the cost has a really powerful effect. And I think some of the Indos have really caught on to this now because they always start at a ridiculously high price. Yeah, oh definitely, man. A hundred percent. Yeah, I was um yeah, in, in Thailand recently and they just start with a ridiculously high number because they know that people are gonna try and adjust down from there and they know it's a process of adjustment so they come in with a high number knowing everyone's going to say no that's ridiculous let's cut down and meet somewhere in the middle so they start with something ridiculously high so obviously you want to be the one starting and putting the initial anchor on the table and and go at an extremely low level that's if you're a visitor to one of these countries if you're a listener keep doing what you're doing you're doing lovely at it but if you're on the other side and you are on the receiving end of a ridiculous anchor. You need to get the anchor off the table as quickly as you can. Make a scene of it, storm out of the room, tell them that anchor is absolutely unacceptable and make sure they bring it bring it down to uh, an acceptable level or you get your anchor on the table. Yeah, as a as a as a crude numbers example, if if they say this is uh, this should be 80 bucks, if you think it's somewhere around 50 and they say this is like 80 bucks, it's a ridiculously high starting point. If you say come in with your own ridiculously low and say no nah, no, nah, it should be like 20 bucks, it's just a point of almost no return. Like that's a ridiculous negotiating tactic. And if you say oh no, it should be 40, maybe you meet in the middle and it's 60 and you end up losing. So as you said, mate, what you need to do is get that 80 off the table rather than coming back with your own low ball offer. Rather than taking that 80, say, nah, no way. What's a better starting point? And maybe if they say 70, maybe you've won because it's a better starting point. So if you're listening now and you're about to negotiate your salary, for example, bloody use this anchor effect. <laughs> you're crazy not to. You know, go out for coffee before the conversation with them, trying to slip in a few big numbers <laughs> and just slip a few anchors subconsciously and then consciously as well. And then make them roll the dice as well. Make them roll a d- load <laughs> of dice. <laughs> at 200, at half a million bucks, whatever you're, whatever you're going for. But then obviously consciously as well. Put Make sure that the number on the table at the very start is a high anchor that they need to compromise down from as opposed to then just putting that low ball off at a very, to start with and, and starting from there. Availability biases. So like all of the other heuristics, because uh, System 2 is effortful, System 1, we like to jump to conclusions. Often what System 1 does is it changes the question almost to become an easy question. So rather than thinking of what's the risk of flying, which is like a hard question, you've got to weigh up all the different number of flights around the world and the number of plane crashes. An easier question is how many plane crashes have I seen on the news in recent times? So remember when we're using System 1, there's this all this associative machinery in your brain that you're pulling from. The stuff at the top of the associative machinery that it really digs really gives you how much uh, weighting to a certain category. So for example, if you're talking about the, the plane ride and there was three plane crashes in the last month, your associative machinery has plane crashes very high up. So all of a sudden, you're going to attribute a huge amount of risk to flying by plane. So instead, you might drive a ridiculous... Uh, distance and be really rational in that sense. Yeah, and it's also like if you if you drive along the side of the road, if you're driving along and you see a car crash on the side of the road, 
like that's going to be front of mind and you'll probably like slow down 5Ks an hour and be much more cautious. And then, you know, two days later, once you've forgotten about seeing that, uh, seeing that accident, you're back to running red lights and texting while driving and <laughs> doing all that crazy stuff. Absolutely. So there's been actual research into the public perception of risks. Again, this is where the public as a whole is really irrational because they fall into this availability biases and it does it by considering pairs of deaths. So if you were to compare the frequency of the amount of people die, for example, in a different range of categories, for example, strokes cause twice as many deaths as all accidents combined. But accidents, you know, they're really exciting. They're top of mind. So in reality, 80% of people judge accidental deaths to be more likely than strokes. Yeah, if you, if you were to be asked, you know, what's more likely, dying in a car crash or having a stroke? Because the, uh, the car crash is such a vivid thing, you probably hear about them more often on the news. You don't hear about the person who had a stroke on the news because it happens so regularly. But because it happens so regularly but we don't hear about it, it's almost like suppressed in our mind that that's something that could possibly happen. Another good one is about tornadoes. Tornadoes are really exciting. They're in Hollywood movie blockbusters and everything. And you think, all right, what kills people more, tornadoes or asthma? And people actually think tornadoes kill more people than yeah. asthma because they're fucking yeah. running around rampant. But asthma kills 20 times more people. Yeah. And the same as, you know, they had deaths by accident compared to deaths by diabetes. They had it ranked as 300 times more likely to die by an accident than to die from diabetes. But actually, the real ratio is diabetes is four times as lethal as any kind of accident. So, we irrationally attribute more risks to all the sexy, exciting ways to die compared to just the boring, mundane things that are probably really going to get you, like diabetes or you know, heart disease and all these boring ways. Yeah, exactly. Another time where the, this availability bias works against this is if you were to ask uh, a couple, you know, how much do you contribute to the, the daily chores? Like, how much housework do you do uh, as a percentage? And generally, if you add those two things together, it's going to be way more than 100% because both people just think about what they're doing and think less about what the other person's doing. So, they rank themselves higher and it's probably going to add up to way more than 100%. Yeah, if you were asked the question at the top of your brain, it's really easy to pull all the things you did. You know, I did the vacuuming, did the washing, did all this and it's really easy and top of the brain that you did. But the partner stuff, that's somewhere below the top of the brain. So, you know, you kind of just pull that to the side. So, again, you irrationally attribute the, the percentage in the very wrong way. So, another way that's availability affects is, is it can actually really warp your own judgment of yourself. So, big cheeky Danny, he did a study where he really got people to rate their own assertiveness. And one population, they were asked to list six instances when they were assertive. So, if you're asked six, you can probably come up with six hmm. pretty easily, top of brain and, and all that. And I these think... people rated themselves quite assertive. The second population he asked, they had to list 12 times they were assertive. So, they got to six. The first six were pretty easy. And then they got to seven, eight, nine, ten. And it was really hard. And they go, oh, shit. By the end, they're thinking, fuck, I'm, maybe I'm not that assertive. So, they rated themselves low in terms of assertiveness. Yeah, exactly. That availability of how easily things come to mind uh, impact what we think as well. A, ver a similar study where a professor at UCLA, Danny uh, didn't name and shame, but uh, the professor was looking for ways to improve the class, but at the same time, wanted to get good ratings by the students for his class. What he did was he asked students for 10 ways at which the course could be improved. 
and often they struggled to come up with 10 things and he got a really high rating. If he had have said, okay, what are three ways I can improve this course? It's probably pretty easy to think of three things. If you think of three obvious ways in which a course could be improved, you think, actually, this is a pretty shit course. Mm. Uh, but if you th- had to think of 10 ways, you probably think the first three are pretty easy, the next one's hard. By the time you get into six, seven, eight, you're probably running out of ideas and you're getting pretty petty as to what kind of things could improve and you think, actually, this is not too bad at all. This guy's done very, very well. Yeah. Here. This is a bloody good course. Yeah, so you got the upside of both things. you got people to list 10 different ways to improve the course and the first three might have been strong and then the other seven got weaker and weaker and weaker and then by the end, they go, oh, this course is actually great. Yeah. He's doing a pretty good job. <laughs> so I don't know when this can pop up but if you personally, if you're asking for feedback for someone, Maybe ask for a list of 10. Send in an email saying, what are the 10 ways I can improve from your boss? Your boss might go, fuck, you can do one, two, three, four. And then by the time they get the five, six, seven, you're pretty good at your job. And then you you know you get the eight pieces of eight to ten pieces of feedback, but also your boss thinks you're doing a better job than you are. Yeah, it works both ways as well. If you're asking for praise, ask for what were the best three things I did this year because the first three will come pretty easily to them. Don't ask for ten things you did well because the eighth, ninth, and tenth will be tough. So if you're wanting good things, go low. If you're wanting bad things, go high. <laughs> so that's the setup of the availability bias and. What the media can actually do is really exploit us all with an availability cascade. So remember, the importance of an idea is often judged by the fluency and emotional charge that it, that it comes to mind. So if it's the, the, the top of the mind, you think it's really extremely important because you can easily weave together some things that have recently happened for it. But what can happen is actually an availability cascade, which is a self-sustaining chain of events that might start from media reports of a minor event and then all of a sudden lead up to public panic. So, you know, there might be the, the flu epidemic in Australia, which is, I think, a very low percentage of actually dying, but it's top of mind because everybody's speaking about it. So then all of a sudden, there might be some media reports because it's the top of mind, and then people think and get a bit more fearful of it. So then there's more media reports because they're trying to sell papers and so forth. So it's a, it's a feedback loop of a, a, an availability cascade. Yeah, if you think of like, it seems like every couple of years something like this happens. Like there's SARS or there's bird flu or there's swine flu or every every couple of years, it, it seems like the world's about to, everyone's just going to die from something because it starts off as, you know, someone gets hospitalized, the media reports from, you know, someone's hospitalized from bird flu, that's just the start of it and then people start to get a little bit worried but not, not too much but because people are worried about it, the media starts reporting about it more and more and more and then maybe three people have died from bird flu, people are starting to get more and more worried and then, you know, the media wants to report about it more, 30 people have died and then suddenly the suddenly 80% of the news cycle is all about these, all these people dying from bird flu and the whole world's going crazy thinking that they're going to die from bird flu. Now, I remember back, I was in... Uh, Year 11 at school, it was, it was the swine flu years, 2009. Our school got shut down because of swine flu, mm. uh, just because of, you know, it was a couple of people who died around the world and the media was talking about it and it was this worldwide epidemic and it, people just lost their shit. Yeah, absolutely. It becomes politically important at a point as the availability entrepreneurs, he calls them, yeah. who exploit this as much as they can and then it gets to the point where the, the politicians are changing policy from these... Ex- really irrational viewpoints and really misguiding resources. And what happens with things like this where it's built up and the availability of it is it comes to you easily because it's on the news all the time and it's got such emotional charge because people are dying for it. The, the next factor that comes in is probability neglect. 
So maybe the actual probability of dying from swine flu was 0.00001%. Because you're seeing three times a day on the news someone else just died from swine flu, we're neglecting that actual probability and it seems to be much more scary than it actually is. So we either ignore the risk completely or we give it too much weight, nothing in between. So the amount of concern isn't adequately sensitive to the probability of harm. We don't even look at that. We only look at the numerator, the thing that happens. We don't look at the denominator and really assess the risk. So the combination of probability neglect, where you're not looking at the base rate and the denominator and the likelihood of things, with the social mechanisms of availability cascades, can lead to ridiculously gross exaggeration of very minor threats that are very unlikely to, to smack you up and sometimes with extremely important consequences to our whole society. Yeah, and, and the obvious one is terrorists using this to their advantage. So the actual probability of someone in the Western world dying from an act of terrorism is extremely, extremely, extremely low. You can almost say zero, yeah. close to zero. So, close, so close to zero, it's a, it's a rounding error. That it's you know a couple of attacks each year where people die. Obviously, they're they're bad things, but it's extremely unlikely for you as the average person to die from an act of terrorism. But because these acts of terrorism, they're using to their favour all of these uh, heuristics and biases against us. You know, one uh, gruesome act of terrorism gets reported on in the news for three days. Uh, there's all these stories about it, and it's built up in our mind that terrorism it's happening more and more often, and that it's having bigger and bigger consequences. So it gets really wound up to the point where our probability neglect kicks in, and we forget to realise that actually it's not that likely at all. So the whole population are really exploited by these availability entrepreneurs. Again, the media who are just selling papers and selling these news. And then again, because the the cascade, it does end up affecting the whole public policy of governments. You know, and there might be strong, much stronger border protection laws because of this, because all of a sudden people are fearful of other cultures. And, you know, they might miss out on all the upside of having other cultures and a more diversified culture. So, you know, I know some people right now who be reading the really conservative newspapers and you can just tell at the top of their minds, they're really worried about terrorism and all these other cultures coming in. But at the same time, they're about 120 kilos. They're really unhealthy. They're really unfit. And you can just know there's about 10,000 times more likelihood that that person's going to die of coronary heart disease. And they should be really thinking about the food that they're putting in the mouth and not be so fearful of terrorists who are maybe occupying a ridiculously proportion of their mind relative to the risk that they pose to them. Yeah, what terrorism does, it speaks directly to system one. It speaks directly to our, uh, our automatic responses, our gut intuitions, our emotions, our feelings. But really what we need to do is kick system two into action a bit and start to think a bit more deeply about the true consequences of some of the things we're doing. Associative coherence. System one has a really hard time when judging things in terms of their, their, their benefits they pose and also their risk. So there's a negative correlation between level of benefit and the risk attributed to technologies, for example. They should be somewhat mutually exclusive, the benefit and the risk. But if you're asked, and you know everyone's got a different idea, say, about nuclear power, those people who think nuclear power is very beneficial to society and highly renewable, those same people think at the same time it's very low risk. But those people who think that nuclear power is bad and it's not the solution going forward, 
they see it as high risk. Yeah, it's interesting that we, we should be able to weigh the potential benefits as one thing and then next we weigh the potential risks as something separate. But as you say, we are heavily impacted if we feel strongly one way or the other. If we think it's really, really risky, then we're going to think it has a very low benefit. Or if we think it's a really, really high benefit, we're going to then think, oh, actually, the risk is pretty low. So rather than judging them in isolation, judging the benefit and judging the risk, our, our strong feelings one way or the other will impact the next assessment we do. There's a quote by Jonathan Haidt, the emotional tail wags the rational dog. So, the rational dog in this case is the one that's judging the amount of risk, but it's completely affected by the emotional tail, which is really looking at the amount of benefit from it. Another way that this comes into play is, say, in the, in the health domain, experts and scientists who think somewhat rationally, they maybe measure the risks of something in terms of the number of lives or the number of years lost uh, and trying to take some of these rational scientific elements into it. Whereas the public, they're probably looking at good deaths versus bad deaths. They're, they're taking the emotional side of things. You know, a, a bad death, you know, a doctor who fucks up the surgery and then you die as a result, uh, that's a very bad death because it, it should have been avoidable. Whereas something like, uh, you know, over a long term, you have a stroke, that's, that's a, some kind of acceptable death. You're just getting old, whereas maybe you ate too much sugar throughout your life. And then again, most of the resources probably go to the one that's a bit more uh, exciting and, and, and you know, not, as, not as good, which is from the doctor. And again, this is very big when it comes to public policy. So again, we spend a lot of money going to war despite the risk because mm. it's our fear really wags the rational dog. So the emotional tail here is the fear of war and other cultures and other countries doing some weird shit that we're not we're not used to so then we're going to put a disproportionate amount of resources into that war as opposed to as you said then that you know the the big risk might be stroke and if we put a tiny slice of the money we put to war towards stroke we're actually going to proportionally get the best outcome for our whole society but again it's through these irrationalities that we're uh, shooting ourselves in the foot base rate neglect Another study here, we're given an example, a fictional character called Tom W is a graduate student. We're asked to rank from uh, highest to lowest, what is he most likely to be studying? Business, computer science, engineering, law, medicine, library science, physical science. In something like that, we're going to be going for the base rate. We're going to be thinking out of all these courses, out of all the graduate students, uh, how many are doing business? How many are doing law? How many are doing medicine? How many are doing library? And we're going to use that base rate of the whole population to determine our rankings as to what is most or least likely. So the question here is really easy to just attribute the, the likelihood. There's no narrative associated to Tom. You're just objectively thinking about what is the base population of each of these and the highest probability will be based on just simply how many people percentage go into these courses. Now, the second part of the population were asked differently. Here, a narrative was weaved about Tom and then they were asked. So, they said, Tom, he's highly intelligent. He's lacking creativity. He needs order and clarity. His writing is dull. He's corny. He has very little sympathy, doesn't enjoy interacting with others, but he's still got a deep moral sense. If we're giving that and then asked to rank, what's he most likely to be studying? We're probably going to say medicine's probably not up his alley because he doesn't have sympathy, doesn't like interacting with others. 
uh, we're probably going to be thinking, okay, he's really smart. He doesn't have creativity. Uh, he doesn't like talking to others. Maybe something like computer science is somewhere where his skills are probably more likely. What we've done here is we've completely neglected the base rate. We haven't even considered you know, what proportion study business versus law versus engineering versus science. All we've done is taken these couple of sentences, uh, this narrative about this dude, and then we're trying to make stabs based on that. So when system one hears some kind of narrative, it will just delete the whole idea of the base rate. It'll forget about that completely. Listen to the narrative and just choose what goes closest to the narrative only. Kahneman calls this the sin of representativeness. What we're doing here is we're taking these stereotypes. We're thinking, okay, he's, he's intelligent but doesn't have creativity. Uh, he's pretty corny. He doesn't care about other people but he's still pretty good, so maybe he's a computer dude. So that's sort of like we're, we're making assumptions based on this stereotype. Sometimes it's going to be right, but sometimes it's going to be very wrong as well. Yeah, so this is our us warping stereotypes to, to people and sometimes it's it's right, yeah, but as you said, sometimes wrong. I recently watched the movie Moneyball, which is based on Michael Lewis's book and this is a whole movie which is really exactly about base rate neglect and how baseball scouts for a very long time really got rid of the base rate neglect because of the narrative they were weaving about the players. For example, there might be a tall, good-looking player and the narrative that our system one will weave that person, oh, they're tall, good-looking, they're obviously extremely good at baseball. So those people who are in that category had a disproportionate amount of money attributed to them. But those people who had a very poor narrative about them, you know, they might have a really weird throwing arm and everything like that, then those scouts looking at them for those people were shit. And if they had the base rate neglected and looked at the stats objectively about the results they were achieving, then you could really pick up on the inefficiencies of all the scouting and the recruiting that was going on in baseball. And this is exactly what Billy Bean did. When he was a scout, he got rid of the complete story that they were showing and, and only looked at the numbers and the stats that were showing up through a whole range of different formulas. And through that, they got a really cost-effective team full of the, the misfits that all the other scouts who were falling into the base rate neglect categories were missing out on. And this way, he got uh, records of the, you know, the first baseball team to get 20 wins in a row. Another test for you now is to think about a, a well-dressed lady gets on the subway in New York and she's reading the New York Times newspaper. Uh, which is a better bet? Is it a better bet that she has a PhD or that she does not have a college degree? If you're thinking, okay, maybe she's been working in Wall Street, she's well-dressed, she's uh, intelligent, she's reading the newspaper, she's reading the, the finance section, maybe you think that uh, she's got a PhD. What we've done there is we've completely neglected the base rate. If you look at the whole population as a whole, the proportion of people that have a PhD is extremely low compared to the proportion of people who do not have a college degree. So what we've done is we've taken a few small things. Our system one thinks is likely that someone will have a PhD and we've completely neglected the fact that maybe it's like a, a 50 to 1 or 100 to 1 or probably even more difference that it's probably way more likely statistically that she does not have a college degree than that she has a PhD. So call on your system to, to question the decisions you're making when it comes to base rate and understand a lot of the time your automatic snap judgment is all about weaving the story that fits the best to weave your decision and you need to really look at the base rate and the, the denominator of the equation. Conjunction fallacy. Again, we're presented with a story, this time Linda. Linda, she's 31, she's single, outspoken, bright, 
She majored in philosophy. She's deeply concerned with issues of social justice and recently took part in anti-nuclear demonstrations. That's the story we're told about her. Now we're asked to think about which of these is more likely. Is she a teacher in an elementary school? Does she work in a bookstore and take yoga classes? Is she active in the feminist movement? Is she a psychiatric worker? Is she a bank teller? Is she an insurance salesperson? Or is she a bank teller who is active in the feminist movement? And what they found was that people uh, selected this uh, bank teller who is active in a feminist movement more than selecting bank teller, which Mm. is actually weird because uh, obviously like bank teller plus feminist movement is a subset of bank teller. If she's a bank teller in, in the feminist movement, she's a bank teller, but she could also be a bank teller not in the feminist movement. So again, adding that detail adds for a more coherent story. So, you know, a bank teller who's part of the feminist movement, that feminist movement, you think of someone who's going out there, going to nuclear demonstrations, deep, deeply concerned about social justice, that fits that category that, like you set up. And you think just a bank teller, mm. a bank teller is just a boring person doing nothing and it doesn't fit the story. But obviously, bank teller is much more likely and you're losing the probability when you're adding more and more details. Yeah, exactly. It seems, whilst it seems like bank teller, not that likely, bank teller, but she's in the feminist movement, actually, maybe that makes a bit more sense. But by adding more and more complexities into it, it actually becomes less and less likely each time because we're like taking a smaller and smaller subset rather than looking at the whole. So, this is that fallacy where maybe we're adding an extra layer of detail that makes a story make sense, but really it becomes less likely. So, 89% of people fail this serious, simple logic of probability. And the interesting one is the Stanford graduate class, the people who are meant to be the top of the top smarties, 85% of them always stuff this one up, even the ones who studied statistics as their, you know, as their undergraduate degree. What about a question here? Which of these is more likely? There's a, a massive flood somewhere in North America in which 1,000 people drown. Or is it more likely that there's an earthquake in California in which it causes a flood in which a thousand people drown? Now, if, you, if you're thinking about that, if you're from America and you're, and you're familiar, California has a lot of earthquakes. So, you might be thinking, oh yeah, that, that's pretty likely there could be an earthquake in California that could lead to a flood in which a thousand people drown. Uh, you've just fallen for the classic cognitive uh, conjunction fallacy here because the first one was saying a flood somewhere in North America... And now we've just uh, added the extra element of a flood in California. So we've completely narrowed down the field and statistically, it's actually less likely, even though it sounds plausible. Mm. So for you, adding details to things makes the scenarios more persuasive, but much less likely to come true. Yeah, he says we need to be careful that evaluating the plausibility and coherence should be different from looking at the underlying probability. So, when someone out there is projecting something to you and speculating and they create this really complicated scenario, part of your brain is going to think that's going to be more probable because it fits a real story that makes sense. But just remember, it's just simply a plausible story, but not probable. Regression to the mean. Danny Kahneman... He's a, he's a big dog. He gets flown around the world to train different organizations and one that he helps train is the Air Force. And he was talking to a group saying how the best way to improve performance is to just simply provide rewards rather than just punishment of mistakes. And then someone from the crowd who thought he was just some legendary officer, been doing it for a long time, he said, on many occasions, I praise flight cadets for a clean execution and doing something awesome. And then straight after I praise them, they fuck it up 
and they suck. And at the same time, if they do something extremely bad and they stuff something up, after that, I berate them and yell at them and scream at them. And because I yell at them, all of a sudden, they're doing much better. So, Danny, you're wrong. <laughs> it sounds... On one hand, for this guy who's just seen this, I guess it sort of makes sense. You give someone praise and then they do worse next time or you yell at them and they do better. So, all he's, all he's thinking is, I just got to yell at people and they'll get better and better and better. But Danny Kahneman, he said, on one hand, you're right, but really, you're just pointing out the regression to the mean. So, for example, everybody's got this, this average level of performance that they're going to go to. And when they do an extremely above average performance... It's extremely hard to back up above average performance multiple times in a row. So what happened is this flight cadet did something really above their personal average performance and then from there, they're much more likely to go down than up. So when they're above average, the person starts saying, good job, good job, good job, good job and there's only downside from there and then vice versa, after they did something really bad, there's only upside from the bad. So it doesn't matter what the officer said they're going to have the same result anyway. And again, the officer just attributed the story and their own personal impact on influencing the flight cadet. Yeah, that's a big mistake on like the, the correlation versus causation uh, that we talked about in Freakonomics that, as you say, there's always these random fluctuations in performance. Sometimes we're going to do not so good. Sometimes we're going to do really well, but generally we're going to be somewhere near the average. And if you've just hit like the bottom of your range, next time you're probably going to get better. The army... A dude who started yelling, he thinks that he's causing the person to do better next time. But really, it was just correlation. They both happened at the same time. He was going to get better anyway. And the army dude thinks because he yelled, it was it was all on him. There was a there was another thing about about golfers uh, where they found that you know if they did really really well on day one, they were in the lead, they were beating, they were winning by four strokes. They just had this uh, awesome round. Uh, they might think, oh, this guy's on fire. He's going to do really, really well again tomorrow. What they found was that the next day, they sort of just dropped back towards their average. It was just one of those random fluctuations that, of course, sometimes you do a little bit better, sometimes you do a little bit worse, but generally, you're going to be somewhere around the mean. You're going to always regress towards the mean. And of course, the more extreme that first score, the more regression we're going to expect the following time. So that was a quite a seriously heavy episode. My system two is completely <laughs> depleted after doing that episode and reading this book. It takes all your co- cognitive effort. I mean, it's only 10 a.m. and I'm cooked for the rest of the day. Yeah. I <laughs> Man, I'm going to go play footy after this. I'm not going to be able to think straight, that's for sure. Man, I'm the, ball, be... the ball will be coming to you. There's going to be no focus there. I think you're going to get falconed a few times. <laughs> Most definitely. So as we said, this is such a massive book. We're only halfway through it. So we're breaking this up into two episodes. We'll recap what we've just talked about and then we'll talk about what's coming up next week. So what we did to set it up was we talked about the two main characters of our thinking, System 1 and System 2. System 1 is our fast thinking. It's automatic. We don't really have to think about it. We're just jumping to conclusions based on emotions and things around us. Whereas System 2 is cognitively demanding. It's effortful. You have to, once it's triggered, it really has to think carefully and deeply. takes effort, but at the same time, you've only got so much System 2 to go around. And remember, System 1, it's the one that can fall to a whole range of different biases and heuristics that we explored. And some of them are things like laws of small numbers, anchors, availability and availability cascades, base rate neglect, less is more, so what you see is all there is, and regression to the mean. Now, next time, we're going to talk about human overconfidence. 
So we're going to be talking about things like the narrative fallacy, hindsight bias. Uh, We're going to talk about our intuitions versus relying on formulas. We're going to talk about the planning fallacy. And then some of the things that Kahneman was most uh, well known for uh, is prospect theory, which is what he won his Nobel Prize for, things like loss aversion and sunk cost fallacy. So it's a big puffer of the book. I'm going to let that system two get back up and, uh, you know, refill, and then we'll get straight back into it. 